Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. An Elio's original. I was born with a special gift. The ability to mentally transform any situation into the worst case scenario in my own brain. My therapist calls my gift catastrophizing. And that's why I'm uniquely qualified to scrutinize and analyze history's greatest disasters and find out who's to blame. They say history repeats itself. Not on my watch. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and I am The Alarmist. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to The Alarmist, a comedy podcast where we talk about history's greatest tragedies and figure out who's to blame. Now, a couple of quick announcements before we get started here. We have merch. So go to the Erios website to look at all of our merch selections, and that's erios.net slash shop. Also, we have a Discord page. Now, we're just kind of like getting started on this whole Discord thing where we think we understand what it is. Um, it's a community site for the Alarmy to connect and discuss the tragedies that we talk about on the show. So download the Discord app and check out the invite link on our show notes. And finally, I just want to remind everyone to rate and review our podcast. It really helps us grow the alarmy. So here's a fun recent review. It's from EFD Valea, and they say, amazing, five stars. I listen to at least two episodes a day. I joined the alarmy late, so I have to catch up. 
currently on Amelia Earhart, and I wholeheartedly agree with almost all of your final decisions. Also, love the, quote, original three and all the guests. Thank you so much for making my days better. So thank you for leaving a review. Now let's get started figuring out who's to blame for the Betty Broderick murders. Here's what you need to know. Elizabeth Ann Basiglia was born on November 7, 1947, in a suburb just one hour outside of New York City. The Basiglias were a successful Irish-Italian family from a strong Catholic background, and Betty, as everyone called her, was the third of their six children. She and her siblings attended private schools, and the family belonged to a country club. Betty was tall, blonde, smart, and beautiful, a catch. Her mother was strict and determined to raise Betty to be a proper lady. She was expected to go to school, find a Catholic man, marry him, and become a good, doting wife. In 1965, Betty, just shy of her 18th birthday, attended a chaperoned football game at Notre Dame. There, she met Daniel Thomas Broderick III. Dan was a skinny, tall, bookish young man in his senior year of med school. And oh, he was smitten by Betty. He handed her a napkin with his name, followed by the initials MDA. Medical doctor. Almost. Betty initially wrote him off as a geek, but Dan pursued her. In Betty's words, The guy asked me to marry him every day for three years. Well, it worked. The couple married in 1969 in a chapel in Westchester County, New York. And by the time they returned from their honeymoon, Betty was pregnant. It's a girl! After finishing medical school, Dan announced he would go to law school to become a medical malpractice lawyer. Betty supported the family while Dan went to school by working multiple jobs babysitting, selling Tupperware and Avon products, all while watching their two daughters. The couple would eventually go on to have two daughters, two sons, and another child who died four days after birth. Dan finished law school, and the family moved to San Diego, where Dan found great success as a lawyer. Betty and Dan had struggled financially in the early years of their marriage, but finally, it seemed like things were on an upswing. The couple bought a large five-bedroom house in the wealthy San Diego suburb of La Jolla. There, they immersed themselves in the elite community and often had their photos in the society pages. Betty was active in her kids' education and extracurricular activities. She also spent a lot of time planning the couple's busy social calendar. Dan became well-known in local legal circles as a prominent malpractice lawyer. Hey, Dan the man! And soon earned $1 million a year. Both Betty and Dan splurged on designer clothing, lavish vacations, and expensive cars. Dan jokingly called himself the Count du Monet, because it stands for money. Get it? Oh, Dan, you're so funny. But their presumed fairy tale marriage began to crumble when, in 1983, Dan hired the firm's receptionist to be his personal legal aid. <laughs> Dan, you're so funny. <laughs> Linda Kokena was young and blonde, and some even said she resembled a younger Betty. It wasn't long before Betty suspected that Dan was having an affair with his assistant. 
The marriage was falling apart, but Betty was determined to make it work. On Dan's 39th birthday, Betty surprised him at the office with champagne and balloons. But Dan wasn't there, and neither was Linda. The receptionist said they had gone to lunch, and so Betty waited for them. But they didn't return. Furious, Betty ran home, grabbed all of Dan's perfectly tailored clothes, and placed them in a pile outside. Then, as the children watched, she burned them in their own backyard. After 16 years of marriage, the Brodericks would embark in a five-year divorce battle that would be known as Broderick versus Broderick. The worst divorce case in San Diego County history. Dan eventually filed for divorce in 1985. In response, Betty spray-painted their home where Dan was staying. She threw wine bottles and smashed his windows, left obscene messages on his answering machine. I know you've been ignoring my phone calls because you're out with the I can't even imagine the things you and that dirty doing. Call me back, Dan. I just want to talk to you. And one time, after sneaking into his house and finding that Linda had made him his favorite dessert, Betty smeared Boston cream pie all over the master bedroom walls. Betty also dropped their kids off without warning at his house, one by one, hoping to teach him a lesson on how difficult it was to care for children. Dan, in response, got a babysitter, filed restraining orders, and had her jailed when she violated them. He tried to move on with his life and continued his relationship with Linda. He purchased a Georgian-style mansion near Balboa Park with large white columns in front. On the day that he sold his and Betty's old house in La Jolla against her wishes, Betty slammed her car through the front door of his new house. Dan subsequently had her committed to a mental hospital. More than once, Betty threatened Dan and told her kids that she would kill their father. I'm gonna kill you and the you piece of But Dan responded by warning her that if he killed him, she would regret it. After five agonizing years, the Broderick's divorce was finalized. In April of 1989, Dan and Linda got married in front of family and friends at their Balboa Park mansion. The new couple hoped that their troubles with Betty would subside and that she'd move on. But Betty was incessant. On November 3rd, 1989, Betty was handed another round of legal papers. This time, Dan threatened to file a criminal complaint unless she stopped leaving lewd messages on his and Linda's answering machine. That night, Betty decided she could no longer take it. Just before dawn, the next morning, Betty grabbed the 38 caliber five-shot revolver she had purchased months earlier and her daughter's keys. She then drove to Dan and Linda's Georgian-style house. Using the key, she let herself in. Betty quietly went up to the second floor and entered the master bedroom where Dan and Linda were sleeping. Betty says she saw Linda move, That's when she took out the revolver and fired five shots. One bullet went through Linda's neck and lodged in her brain, killing her instantly. Another went through her chest. A third bullet pierced Dan's back, presumably as he was reaching for the phone, breaking a rib and tearing through his right lung. But Dan was not dead yet. He dove to the floor near the phone, and Betty said she heard him say, Okay, okay, you got me. 
Fearing Dan would call for help, Betty yanked the phone from the wall and fled. Immediately after the murder, Betty called her eldest daughter, Lee, and confessed what had happened. Later that day, Betty Broderick turned herself in. Fun Facts, a.k.a. Death Stats. Linda Colcana died instantly due to the bullet that pierced her brain. It is believed that Dan Broderick was alive for three minutes after he was shot. Soon after her story appeared in print, hundreds of people, most of them women, wrote to Betty and to local newspapers to say that while they didn't condone murder, they understood the fury that prompted it. Betty is quoted as having said, It always makes me mad when people call them victims. Me and my kids, we were victims. There are two dead people, but there were five victims. Betty's first trial ended in a hung jury. The judge declared a mistrial. She was retried a year later with the same defense lawyer and prosecutor. This time, the jury returned with the verdict of two counts of second-degree murder. Betty was sentenced to two consecutive terms of 15 years to life, plus two years for illegal use of a firearm. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hello, Rebecca. Fact checker Chris Smith. That's fact checker Smith. And our very special guest today is Cass Bouguet. She's a comedian, actor, and good friend. Hi, Cass. Yo, what's up? <laughs> She's an Instagram karaoke star, too. Oh, my God. That's yeah. right. What, what's your handle so people can follow your karaoke? At Cass Bouguet. C-A-S-S-B-U-G-G-E. <laughs> well, this is... The perfect segue, perfect segue (laughs) to talk about Betty Broderick. Now, obviously, first up, we're not going to get in trouble for not putting the person who committed the crime this time up on the board. (laughs) Betty Broderick has to go up. Now, let me tell you a little, uh, some, give you some info on her. Now, according to an LA Times article, as she tells it, quote, If Dan had settled the divorce to her liking, she said, I would have been fine. I would have had my house, my kids. I would have still worn a size six. I could have done my superior dance. Eager to make her case, she jumped frantically from incident to incident, even without the benefit of her voluminous divorce records. Betty recited names, dates, and details to show just how ruthless she believed her husband had been. Dan, she said had tried to drive her insane so no one would fault him for divorcing her. Mm-hmm. Now, this is another quote. I have never had emotional disturbance or mental illness, except when he provoked a disturbance, she spat. My emotional outbursts were only a response to Dan's calculating and hateful way of dealing with our divorce. He was hammering into me and everyone else that I was crazy. How long can you live like that? Now, Betty's divorce, you know, or or her marriage, I should say, was, according to her, perfect until Linda and and Dan started with the affair. Um, But there's evidence to suggest otherwise. Now, uh, this is from her kids from the same article. Mom was always kind of weird, recalls Kim, their daughter. That's horrible. (laughs) 
<laughs> mom would get mad at dad all the time. Once mom picked up a stereo and threw it at him. She locked him out constantly. He'd, all, he'd come around to my window and whisper, Kim, let me in. <laughs> Over a dozen years, <laughs> Betty threatened to leave Dan a hundred times. Dan's brother, Larry, estimates. Dan responded by retreating, uh, retreating from Betty and escaping into his work. He didn't pay much attention to her, Larry says. The more it happened, the more he would tune her out. Now, according to a CNN article, she testified at her 1990 murder trial that she only wanted to talk to her ex-husband and that and then splash my brains all over his house, but fired at the couple because she feared that they'd call the police. They this is a quote. They moved. I moved. And it was all over. She testified. Um, and uh, so wait, she's saying there that she went to she was she was going to commit suicide. She went yeah. to the house, yeah. according to Betty. She went to commit suicide, but she only since it was a five. That's why it's a five shot revolver is key. She fired all five shots at Dan and Linda because she saw them move in their own house in their own bed <laughs> that she had snuck into. But then she realized she didn't have an, a bullet to. Uh, to do what she had gone there to do. But like, even if they were going to call the cops, if she was going to, first of all, let's not rephrase commit suicide. Cause she called it splash my brains all over their house. That's right. That's right. It is very violent. There is something to the way she describes all these things. She has this, um, panache. She's a charismatic woman. Yeah, I mean, also I get how she's like the patron saint because she's sort of like the evil superhero of like scorned women, right? Because it's like yeah. I feel like you when you get in a fight with your spouse, you just kind of like sort of the best that you can do is say like, I don't like you right now. But like she like <laughs> took his clothes and burned them. <laughs> she spread Boston cream pie that his girlfriend made all over the house. Like, I mean, like. Just even that she, like, wanted him to understand how hard it was to take care of children, so she dropped off one child at a time at the house is just so, like, I feel like every angry housewife is probably like, that's what I wish I had done up until the murder part. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the movie you play in your head and the fantasies you have, right? I mean... Maybe they're not that intense. A, a Boston cream pie on the wall, it is a fantasy. I just think it through my anxiety, you know? It's like, then I'm going to have to clean the Boston cream pie. That What if the dogs eat some chocolate? But it's so perfect, right? It's like Boston cream pie is one of the most spreadable pies. If you're going to spread a pie on the wall, like apple pie, it's just going to be chunks. And there's just like you have five feet of wall to cover with an apple pie, you know, like a Boston cream pie (laughs) is just all spread. Yeah, (laughs) You could go floor to ceiling if you wanted to. (laughs) Now let's pause for a moment to speak with guest expert Alyssa. Smith, a 20th century U.S. violence and crime researcher for the University of Chicago. Here's what she has to say. What is it about this particular case that really struck you in your research? So I think one of the most central pieces of this story is that Betty Broderick, her identity and her experiences as a white woman 
are what make people first, it, what makes the story first resonate on like a broad level. So women like her latched onto this story because it reflected back to them a lot of their own experiences and feelings, perhaps even some of their own like revenge fantasies about their lives and their relationships. So many women felt that they had also built their husband's careers, that they were underappreciated, that, you know, they'd been left by their husbands for younger women. And this is all happening in like the post second wave feminism era, which like second wave feminism was very rights focused. And by the 80s and 90s, feminism is starting to mean something different. It's starting to mean having everything, having it all, being able to have a job and a family, be the perfect wife and mother and have a perfect professional career. And like that shift seemed like liberation at first, but it turns out to be really frustrating for a lot of women because suddenly declaring yourself a feminist means that you're responsible for like way more, but you don't have any added support, right? And Betty Broderick, it's clear from what I've seen, the the sources that I've consulted, that she was really happy when she was able to stop working and she was able to be a full-time wife and mother after her husband um, started to make more money. But she still felt a lot of pressure to do that perfectly and to be like a superwoman in that way. Oprah, in her interview, referred to her as a super mom. Um, And Betty describes feeling like really she was a single parent and that her husband was not there which resonated with a lot of women. Um, But it's also really important to point out that that image of like who could be a superwoman was really limited in that it excluded poor women. It excluded women who worked multiple jobs, who were single mothers, who were not sexually interested in men, um, who were unattractive, seen as unattractive, or otherwise just seen as unable to keep a husband. So it's really important to think of Betty Broderick's like whiteness and her wealth as central to this story. Think of how the media or the general public might have reacted if she had been black or if she were on welfare. Um, So, you know, the first major point that I want to make really is that her gender, her race, and her class, her position as a wealthy white woman was central to this story because of like how the public had access to it and how they were able to identify with her. Listen to the full interview on this week's Aftermath episode. Now back to our conversation. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So, okay, so it's obvious we're putting Betty up on the board. I mean, look, she she killed him. She went she went way too far, way yeah. too far. Now, I think we also need to put Dan Broderick up on the board. Like Chris said, by most accounts, he was actually a very good lawyer. Um, and he was the kind of lawyer who you wanted on your team, but you didn't want him as opposing can- counsel. He was cold. He was distant. He was relentless. He was calculated. Uh, Betty told the New York Times in the fall of 1991, his was the white collar way of beating you. If you had if you had hit me with a baseball bat, I could have shown people what he did and and made him stop. And in September of 1984, Dan discovered a crack in the foundation of their home that required extensive repairs. The family moved out into a large rental house. I believe this is before the Betty finds out about the, the affair. Betty is convinced that Dan used the repairs as an excuse to get her out of the house. Now, Dan was like very punitive towards his wife even though he knew that she was likely to, this was likely to trigger her. But Dan began to withhold $100 for every obscene word that she used, $250 for each time she set foot in the property, $500 for every entry into the house, $1,000 for every time she took one of the children without their permission. In one month, Betty claims, Dan fined her so many times that her allowance totaled minus $1,300 minus a month later. (laughs) So a a, a judge ordered Dan to pay eventually, but Betty would get $16,000 a month. So this month she owed Dan $1,300. That's how much it wasn't working. But still, that's a very, uh, what is that? It's it's not cruel, but it's calculated and it's... it's, I mean, I think it is cruel. It's it's very petty. It's very controlling. And it's like when you have someone um, who, okay, so like as a kid and occasionally as an adult, I've been known to have a tantrum. (laughs) And when I have a tantrum, if the person on the other end of it the more they ignore me, which I could I could understand that it's like that's what they think they should do, but the worse it gets. And so with, with Dan being so cool to Betty and so, um, you know, like putting this sort of removed, like I'm going to charge you, he's like not acknowledging her anger at all. And I, I understand how that could just cause you to freaking spiral because all you're getting is like a little 
he's knocking your allowance and he's not like listening to what you're saying. And the fact that she has an allowance and that's what it's called is so upsetting. Totally. It's so condescending and just yeah. like patriarchal and like how many kids they have? Like five kids, right? Four. Yeah. Four kids. That's a lot of kid to take care of. It's like instead of being her husband or ex-husband, he's being like her weird dad. It's inhumane of him and cruel and calculated. But when you're when they were no longer married, like how sort of obliged is he to care about her behavior? Isn't it incumbent upon her to look out for her own self-interest? But at that point, he had been doing it for five years. So in the beginning, all Betty wanted to do was talk to him and he wouldn't. And this is how she got, you know, be it what whatever you think, whether it's right or wrong. She was trying to get his attention. Right. And he wasn't talking to her. So, you know, it's like he set he set that up for himself. You know, at some point you have to switch tactics, though. And, and like <laughs> yeah, take, just... you got to take the high road, pretend it doesn't bother you. You, you know, I yeah, don't know. There's got to be other ways. Betty never did that. <laughs> Neither did Dan, though. <laughs> Neither did Dan. There was like some major stuff happening before because it was like when they were married, she locked him out of the house and like did all of these things to him. So it's not like she was like cool and fine with him. And then they got a divorce and she just set him off. It's like there was insanity. I mean, he's crawling through the window, whispering to one of their kids to let him back in. It's like, why do you want to go back inside? It's just, but There was no basis for like healthy communication, obviously. Yeah. Right. Like, and so you can kind of like look at that as this is the worst possible outcome for two people who can't communicate in a positive, proactive way. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying they could have used a, a, a couple counselor, yeah, a good one, a good one. Because I, I feel like they did go to some weird camp, right? I, I listened to that in the podcast. Oh, they while they some, were married, yeah, yeah, they went to a church um, retreat or something. Well, I think we do need to talk about the catholic element to this which is that divorce is absolutely not okay and so that was obviously an element deeply ingrained into betty that this divorce was you know the end of her world this is i'm gonna say something that's kind of you know incendiary but i was raised catholic but i feel like this is such like a classic catholic move that like it's such a sin to get divorced we must stay married and you divorced me so i'm gonna kill you (laughs) (laughs) right it's like see see you in hell right it's like once you're divorced there's nothing left oh right yeah i guess that's true Uh, that okay so i think catholicism for not letting people get divorced should go up on the board catholic divorce shame then there's also community divorce shame you know what i mean well yeah she was so obsessed with her status within this la jolla like Yes, she was, by all accounts, very superficial. And when this divorce happened, all of that went away. But what was so ironic about it is it's self-fulfilling prophecy because also a lot of her friends started to distance themselves because she would talk about nothing else but the divorce. Upper class social stigma, too. There's like an upper classness about it. I'll put like um, Orange County. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We have to talk about the unfair legal system towards women. 
when it comes to divorce. Now, there's a California law that Dan used to his advantage that stated that the couple divorcing had to also split their debt. Now, Betty, in the end, even though she had the $16,000 quote-unquote allowance, she also did not have, she lost custody of of the children. But Betty, in the end, was left with a divorce settlement of under $30,000. That's it. It's believed that Dan might have moved around some money to make it seem like he had less money than he actually did. In February, and if you recall, the incident for, uh, when Dan sold the house, it he used this apparently little known procedure that permitted a judge to sign over Betty's half. So Betty the whole time was like, I don't want to sell our house. He just did it anyway, even though she didn't sign, she didn't agree with it. And then that that's what prompted her to drive her car into his his front door. Betty had no lawyer in 80, 1986 when they start going back and forth. And she claimed that she couldn't find a qualified attorney who would oppose Dan. And she represented herself at one point. Dan then received sole custody of the children with no visitation rights for, for Betty. To this day, Betty says that there's no custody, there was no custody hearing and that Dan and the judge cut a deal behind her back. So I want to put on the board, I have biased legal system. Um, yeah. I, I also want to put up, if we can, like boys clubs. And I also found the name for what you were talking about, Rebecca, the shared debt that Dan took advantage of. It's yes. called Epstein Credits. Ew, Epstein. I know, it's not aptly named. Now, <laughs> do we have old-fashioned gender roles up on the board? We, we have know. boys club. <laughs> because Betty said that since the murders, she was warned... Uh, she has warned her daughters never to depend on men. This is according to an LA Times article. That makes me so sad because I really believed in my little fairy tale, she said, crying into the phone. I would love them to find husbands to provide for them, but I can't tell my daughters to buy into that anymore. It's too dangerous. Look what happened. <laughs> I mean, we got to remember, she, Betty is old school. She was born in 47. Yeah, and she had kids really young, right? So her kids must yes. be like, what, in their 40s, 50s even? They, yeah, I guess they were born in the 70s, early 70s. It is, a, you know, th- that comes with that generation, I feel. Those gender roles, it, it must have been scary for someone like Betty, who had had kind of like put so much into this marriage to then find herself without anything. That said... And I'm going to contradict everything I said. She had a degree in early child uh, education. She had worked. She could have worked as a teacher. She was young. I mean, when she committed the murder, she was 42. So um, she had means. She had a house. She had a $16,000 a month. I mean, that's something like $200,000 a month. Uh, Sorry, a year, which is a, a an incredible salary, if you ask me. I mean, and it's this not is, podcasting money, but it's good. <laughs> this is still, let's keep in mind, this is in the 80s, late 80s. So that's that's good money. She could have succeeded, but I think Betty had a real uh, victim complex. And in a mm. lot of ways, she was a victim. And you have to give her that, like, yes, because of the patriarchy, because of the gender roles. And she made a choice early in the marriage 
to put aside her own aspirations to take part in Dan's career, but then you're totally at the whim of your husband. And you see what happens when someone who is completely dependent on a man, the guy decides to ditch her for, you know, how they say the new model. And then she, but then from there on out, Betty did make a series of choices to take the low road instead of, you know, seeing her future for what it could be, which she could have been happy. But, you know, but but I still do think we need to acknowledge gender roles and also the patriarchy. Okay, put it up there. It uh, We're always trying to get it. Yeah, because also it's like, what's the role of the divorcee in La Jolla society? It's just like, you don't really, I think it's just like on top of the financial thing. I do think that that high society thing is like a great, there's a big loss there. Like one of my mom's friends was saying that like, she like lives in Connecticut and stuff and she just, her husband died, but she doesn't really get invited to these like couples dinners and stuff anymore and that's Mm. just like you know a natural like you know someone dying is just a normal thing but like if you are in your 40s high society divorce i imagine it's just like really you're super ostracized that makes me think i think we should put on the board our obsession with pairs Mm. even numbers (laughs) even num. well i I just feel like two like you're right you don't get to you you know there's single people out there who don't get invited to these couples parties why because like at the end of the day it's just like because there's going to be an extra chair like a (laughs) an, an odd number of chairs now we have to talk about the affair and linda colcana we have to we have to. We have now, to. Now, this is going to sound mean, but uh, from all accounts I've heard or read, Linda couldn't really type. <laughs> <laughs> she could do other things. I know, but <laughs> she, she was she was the receptionist who then got hired as the legal assistant, and the big thing is that she couldn't really type. There you go. What does that tell you? Exactly. Betty really blames Linda, the the affair, as, you know, kind of like bringing down uh, the axe, quote unquote, the axe through my life is what she said. 1983 was like an axe through my life, um, which understandable. When Betty received a photo from uh, of Linda and Dan in the mail, as well as an anonymous note, eat your heart out, bitch. She was sure Linda had sent it. Advertisements for wrinkle cream and weight loss products arrived in a separate envelope, she says. Worst of all, Betty says that Linda refused to return Betty's wedding china even after purchasing new dishes of her own, an action that Kim, their daughter, confirms. The the wedding china part, not the the wrinkle cream and the eat your heart out, bitch. No, it has not been confirmed. Sounds like Dan just likes spicy blondes. So I mean, it, in 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 Linda's defense, friends say that they were uh, they were not capable of this cruelty to to Betty. They um they said that Linda changed Dan, softening his often blunt manner and making him smile. A natural comedian, Linda got laughs from Dan by reciting the airline safety instructions that she'd memorized as a stewardess and coaxing him to act out scenes from Peter Sellers movies. Dan and Linda were too busy enjoying each other, friends say, to spend time tormenting Betty. Okay, so we're coming up on time now. If we have any last things to 
put on the board yes, if they gotta I go up so now. Yes, I have so much. Okay, okay let's do so, it. Um, uh, untreated mental illness. We have to put that up on the board. Um, according to Dr. This is an LA, another LA Times uh, article. Dr. Park Elliott Dietz, a prominent psychiatrist, testified that Betty Broderick suffers from dual personality disorder, narcissistic and histrionic, and that she lacks the warmth of understanding how other people feel. She lacks empathy and that she feels a sense of entitlement in her ultimate quest, revenge against Dan and Linda. Dietz said that Broderick was also manipulative and with her children and that she pitted them against their father. He said such tactics are not uncommon among warring couples, but not to this extent. Now, another thing that is very apparent to me that we need to put up on the board are her parents because they actually abandoned her, abandoned her in a time of need. Um, they, they just didn't help her. And she says about her, her family, all my life, I tried so hard to be a good daughter, a good wife, a good neighbor. My husband unzips his fly and screws the bimbo, and I lose all of that. My mother is a peach, Betty says. If you called home at midnight and you had a flat tire, she'd lie in bed and have people bring her tea and crumpets while she worried about you, and you'd still be out on the freeway. What she doesn't understand is that she's only had one choice. Uh, she it, That is, she only had one choice, his funeral or mine. I hate to tell you, she would have preferred mine. My daughter killed herself is more acceptable than my daughter stood up for herself. Her vi- vi- self-victimization is like really, it's, yeah, she's she's a sleuth at that. Should we put Be- Betty's victim complex on the board? I think so. Another thing I want to put up there is ageism against women past uh, 30. And another thing is that, you know, the murders happened three days before Betty's 42nd birthday. So perhaps we need to do the put up the birthday blues. It's been up there before with Amelia Earhart. (laughs) And finally, I know I'm just rattling through these, but this is important. Betty had a boyfriend. What? Wait, this is news to me. This is a bombshell. Betty had a boyfriend at the time of the murders. The boyfriend was actually the she called him after she called the daughter to confess what had happened. And the boyfriend went to the house and he and I think it was someone else were uh, what were the people who found the bodies and called the cops. And this is guy's name is Bradley, Bradley Wright. The young the, and he was a younger checker. man. I didn't know about this. Uh, he was a secret, right? He was a businessman and a keen sailor. But this kind of sheds a little light on Betty because, I mean, she's got all the tools to move on. The odd numbers no longer apply. Mm, Interesting. Mm -hmm. So you're not alleging he participated in the murders, Rebecca. You're just saying that he should have stopped it or... Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Or or just that, that that the Betty having a boyfriend should... The act of having, not the act, but just having a boyfriend. Sure. The best way to get over someone is to get under someone. She was under someone. That's right, girl. You don't think Betty's a top? I was going to say, Betty does not. (laughs) (laughs) But he was asleep at her house during the the killing. Are you serious? Yes. This is according to uh, Oxygen. True Crime Buzz. Network. I mean, he should have maybe 
seen the Stopped? signs or yeah. Where so, are you going at 5 a.m. with a gun? Well, Men sleep very soundly. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's true. Okay. So, all right, what are we looking at? Who's to blame for the Betty Broderick murders? Betty Broderick, Dan Broderick, Catholic divorce shame, Orange County, Orange County social stigma, La Jolla society, biased legal system, boys club, Epstein credits, gender roles, patriarchy, odd numbers at dinner parties, Linda Colcana, untreated mental illness, Betty's parents, Betty's victim complex, ageism against women, birthday blues, and Betty's boyfriend. Now, Cass, you were saying that you think we can take off the odd numbers at dinner parties. Yeah, the the secret boyfriend. That's that changes everything. Uh, yeah, there's like some shame to it. Um, so so that kind of makes the Orange County social stigma because maybe she felt like she couldn't bring the new boyfriend to town. But definitely she had a plus one. I think Orange County social stigma is kind of more wrapped up in gender roles in the patriarchy. Uh, yeah, I guess it's a social stigma that is everywhere. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not unique to Orange County. I think I, out of respect, we have to take Linda Kilkeen off. Yes. She I, was I the do. true she victim. She was a victim. More yes. than anyone she, she was. Yeah. What was her crime? Not being able to type well? Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Betty's parents, I think we can cross off the board because it, it, it's, it was, it's more like how Betty's framing it. Like Cass said, she's like her victim uh, hood or, or, you know, victim complex really comes out when she talks about her parents. I don't think this boyfriend, I think he's an afterthought. I think he can be eliminated, too. And I think birthday blues can get rolled into ageism, right? Right, yeah. I agree. And I actually think maybe ageism can get rolled into the patriarchy or gender roles. Okay. I also think the the boys club is rough. I think we can wrap up bias, legal system, and Epstein credits into a boys club. Okay. Yeah. I like that. I mean, are gender roles and patriarchy kind of like the thing? Because I feel like the gender roles are sort of like decided by patriarchy. Yeah. We can roll that in. Yeah. And then in that case, boys clubs and patriarchy, they kind of go hand in hand. And I I, I like boys clubs because it's so specific to Dan. Right. Um, But I could see that going either way. But we should probably take one of those off. Uh, yeah, because, you know, it's also part of like what, what Betty did to herself, right? The role she put herself in uh, or, or she fell into. Well, and as we learned with talking to the expert um, for the Monica Lewinsky um, and the Monica Lewinsky Bill Clinton scandal episode, that women are often active participants in the patriarchy right. of enforcing that, which I think Betty is definitely guilty of. Right. So in we, addition to murder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I guess we take the boys club out. Oof. Now, untreated mental illness and Betty's victim complex. I mean, can we roll both of those up into just Betty Broderick or do we like the specificity? Good question. I think we can roll Betty's victim complex definitely into her untreated mental illness. I think Catholic divorce shame can come can come out now. Okay. What do you guys think? Yeah. I think there was more to it for Betty than just the religious 
aspect. She doesn't come off as like a religious zealot or something. What do you think it's like? What do you think that is? Like the murders or? Uh, maybe her, just her language. <laughs> <laughs> that swear jar. <laughs> okay, so okay. we have Betty Broderick, Dan Broderick, the patriarchy and untreated mental illness. I think I know what I want to do and tell me what you think. I actually think we do need to send Betty Broderick to jail. Now, it's it's un- unusual that we send the person who committed the crime to our alarmist jail. We don't often do that, <laughs> shockingly enough. And, you know, it's why our listeners love us, a.k.a. hate us. Um, but I think we should send Betty to jail, and I think we should give the big slap to Dan, even though he was a victim. It was like literally, if, it, if the murders didn't happen, I would, I would gladly send the patriarchy to jail and give untreated mental illness a slap. But I feel like because of the murders, so maybe I don't know about the slap to Dan, even though he's super just, he's not, see the thing is he's not like a super innocent bystander. He was just really cunning and like bad, but I feel like the murders make Betty kind of have to go to jail mm-hmm. for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, a, in another world, I could see sending both Betty and Dan to jail just because there's something satisfying about that because they both sort of let it get out of hand. But I think it is. It's just like Betty took it to that next level. She could not let it go. She would, was never going to let it go to the detriment of like all her family. Um, and so I think we have to send Betty and yeah, I leave it to you guys. The big slap. I, yeah. I mean, now I'm starting to think like I should, ba- I, I, look, I don't want a victim blame. And like, he didn't deserve to die. Doesn't no. You know, he really did not. I might actually put the untreated mental illness because the thing is, is that I keep forgetting to consider is before the divorce. She was wild. Before the divorce. And I'm not saying, like, it's not like the divorce didn't just set her off and turn her into a totally different person. Like, when there was just sort of marital strife. And I understand that maybe Dan was just really frustrating and annoying and cold. But, like, he did want to get back into the house. Although if she had gotten some kind of treatment, who knows? She could be thriving right now. She'd be on a sailboat with that other boyfriend. Oh, goodness. This is a hard one. Okay, Rebecca, it's time for a decision. It's time for a decision. I want to to advocate for Dan to get the slap here because I think that his behavior is so calculated. The the, um, swear jar, um, his his use of the legal system plus his character is revealed when he um and i i don't mean to disparage lawyers in general i i love lots of them uh but when he became a medical malpractice lawyer from the get-go like he that was he had his eye <clears throat> excuse me he had his eyes <clears throat> eyes on the prize on that specifically as like a money grab thing so he just seems to me to be extremely cold-hearted and calculated um, you know, and playing people's weaknesses against them. And and I just think he did that here with Betty. And if he had shown 
a little bit of compassion toward, you know, this woman that you've shared 16 years of marriage uh, with. Yes, she seems like she's not the, uh, the, the ultimate delightful, you know, partner. But, you know, you are having an affair and you're leaving her and you're, 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 you're the one who's creating, you know, whatever. I don't want to. I, I say we slap Dan. He was because if he had just given her money and then gone on his way, like, but he did want a nickel and dimer and find the loopholes and all the stuff and the the thousand dollar swear jar and all that stuff is just. Yeah, he humiliated her. He, you know, he had the affair, which he wasn't upfront about right away. Mm-mm. So she was being gaslit for a long time. And then he just like, he just wouldn't, he played dirty. Yeah. He used, yeah. So I, I'm down with your original idea, Rebecca. Okay. Let's go yeah, for I'm it. down with it too. I'm glad we talked it through though. Yeah. Okay. I'm calling it. Dan Broderick, you're getting the big slap. Betty Broderick, you're going to the alarmist jail. Apparently, she's a, a model uh, prisoner, is from from what I've read. Mm, maybe she'll be a good influence on all of our yeah. <laughs> prisoners in the alarmist the alarmist jail. Oh, yeah. that's true. <laughs> she likes to teach, uh, help people get degrees in jail. Oh, I was going to say it's good her teaching degree. Yes, I'm glad she didn't use it in an actual school for people not in jail. So it's perfect to, you know. She's yeah. helping others. Okay, well, Cass, thank you so much. For helping us get down to the bottom of who's to blame. I think you did a good job. After the Betty Broderick murders, Betty has been denied parole twice. Once in 2010 and a second time in 2017. She will be up again for parole in 2032 at the age of 84. The recent outbreaks of COVID-19 in California prisons have spurred Betty Broderick's supporters, like her defense attorney, Jack Early, to petition Governor Gavin Newsom for a compassionate release. Betty is currently 72 years old. Vote for who you think is to blame by going to thealarmistpodcast.com. Follow us at the Alarmist the on Twitter, at the Alarmist Podcast on Instagram, or email us at thealarmistpodcast at gmail.com. Tune in next week. We'll be discussing the lost colony of Roanoke. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.